This is Action Potential. I'm your host, Sahan Ranamukarachi, and we welcome you to the show. Our goal is to propagate ideas that can revolutionize medical care delivery. Join us on a transformative journey as we amplify the voices of thought leaders, explore the cutting edge of remote physiological monitoring, and ignite a wave of positive change. Hello, everyone. Today, I have a really fun and cool guest here with me, Dr. Paul Komenda, nephrologist and professor at the University of Manitoba, also the chief medical officer of Quanta Dialysis. I've met many nephrologists over the past couple of years. Um, I find myself interacting extensively with Paul for his enthusiasm and views on kidney care of the future. Uh, without further ado, Paul, welcome to the show. And let's start, let's start uh, from, from right there. Let's dive in and hear about you and your uh, career, what's gotten you to here, uh, if you can tell our audience. Thanks so much, Sahan. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here and I'll, I'll reflect back on you as I meet a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and engineers and people starting uh, cool new devices in the space. And uh, certainly relationship with your organization has been really fulfilling for me. And and uh, and like when when great minds can come together, I think that's where the best ideas come from when you have multidisciplinary collaboration on ideas. Um, as, as you alluded to, I'm a clinical uh, and academic uh, nephrologist by training. Uh, I grew up in the central part of Canada in Winnipeg. I went to medical school here, uh, carried on to a residency uh, in internal medicine at Western University outside of Toronto, um, and did, uh, did several years there where I became sort of enamored with uh, nephrology, probably a combination of, of the, the actual practice in nephrology, but also really great mentorship that, that I had in, 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 that, uh, in that program. I moved after that to Vancouver, where I did um, a nephrology subspecialty training at University of British Columbia, where I had fantastic mentorship and experiences there, and, and yet a different sort of health system. Um, one, one mentor, Dr. Deer Levin at UBC is sort of a giant in nephrology globally, and she really got me into the, the, the sort of more practice of health administration and the business side of healthcare. So she encouraged me to do a master's in health administration at UBC, um, which again, I'm really thankful for because I think I found my niche there truly beyond just clinical medicine. And I did some additional training in health economics. Could I, could I quick, um, uh, quickly ask yeah. you to uh, shine a bit more light on Adira Levin as well, for those who don't know? Uh, yeah, Adira is, um, again, she's, she's just a, a wonderful person. Um, as a, as a human being, extremely caring for, um, patients and patient care, um, as a as a as a mentor somebody who cares deeply about the lives of of trainees at all levels at uh, in vancouver um somebody who has dedicated her life to improving the research climate in a variety of different domains of research in canada but globally really important has been a president of the canadian society of nephrology of the international society of nephrology um, has been instrumental in leading a model program for renal program delivery in, in British Columbia. Um, really a prominent as, figure. As a couple of years ago, Order of Canada actually as well. So she's really um, a fantastic person and um, has had a, one, of the, one of the most comprehensive, successful nephrology careers of anybody I know in the yeah. world. Not only, not only um, is she based so, in a beautiful city, but you got to come and then you, uh, you were per yeah. encouraged to pursue other paths um, beyond just nephrology. You were just talking about economics when I interrupted you, Paul. Keep going from there, please. 
Yeah, so health economics, and this is something in nephrology where it was really became interesting to me where, you know, we spend a lot of money in healthcare and we spend a an overrepresented amount of money in nephrology. So life-sustaining, you know, dialysis, care of kidney health patients is tremendously expensive. And what struck me is that, you know, the patients I would see every day in, in, in nephrology, especially in dialysis, um, despite spending all of that money, have really, really poor outcomes, right? 20% of dialysis patients will pass away in the first year. 50% will pass away within five years. There's data that suggests that, you know, dialysis patients have worse survival than many metastatic cancer patients. And we spent, so we're not really getting um, a lot of value for, for the money we're spending on these patients and, and we need to do better. There has been very little innovation in the nephrology space, save for maybe the last few years in decades. Mm -hmm. And and I think um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I'm, I'm happy that a lot more money and interest is going into the nephrology space now. So I took my talents uh, or my training anyway, not, not necessarily talents yet to, to back to Winnipeg, back home. And I've been a faculty here for about 16 years um, and, and really started um, a new home hemodialysis program in Winnipeg. And really Winnipeg is kind of an hour north of the U.S. border. It's kind of a cold place, not a lot of around us. And we take care of patients way up to northern Canada where there's often even not road access. A lot of our Canadian First Nations patients that have you know, a lot of poor social determinants of health overrepresentation of kidney failure. And so we started home hemodialysis here and really grew the program with a lot of sweat equity and just dedication to, you know, getting patients dialyzed more frequently, closer to home. And unbeknownst to us, we had one of the largest programs in the world. And so that that led me to, you know, after years of research and a lot of health economics work and, and a lot of work with kidney health screening for First Nations patients in northern northern Canada. Um, you know, we, I was called upon by a major um, home dialysis machine manufacturer that we were using at the time called Next Stage in Boston, became part of their scientific advisory board and was introduced to the world of the business of healthcare. Um, really enjoyed that and, and worked with some fantastic innovators and entrepreneurs there. That, that company got bought out by one of the largest providers of dialysis in the world, very successful exit. And then I was recruited to kind of do it all over again at a company called Quant out of the UK that was sort of earlier stage. They'd raised a Series B financing and um, I became a consultant, then a 20% chief medical officer. And now most of my time is spent with them. I've seen that company through a Series C and a Series D fundraise, um, CE mark, FDA clearance for you know in-center dialysis, FDA clearance for ICU or CRRT, and we've just submitted our 510k for home dialysis approval within the U.S., uh, which we expect hopefully in the next few months. Um, and it's been a really uh, interesting ride, and I've learned a ton along the way um, with the team at Quanta. Wow, Paul, that's uh, that's that's quite an impressive journey going from where you started to where you ended up. And I think you're still taking uh, a lot of your time to do all of those things that you mentioned. Like you're very much embedded still in clinical practice, clinical yeah. research. Uh, device development, um, speaking with the regulators around what needs to be true for them to see that the devices are safe and efficacious for patients to use. Uh, I want to go back. Um, there's a lot to kind of dive into there. I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned around your home hemodialysis program, Paul, uh, and you spoke about accessing and providing really high quality care to people who are in rural areas. Yep. Uh, how was that received at the beginning compared to now? And what were some of the key considerations that you 
key learnings, let's say, uh, yeah. that you had to implement to make sure that that program is quite successful? Because clearly people are sorting you out uh, on home dialysis, particularly for a reason, uh, given your success. So would you mind educating us a little bit there? Hemodialysis is something that has classically been done in the hospital or in a clinic, highly regulated environment. We're accessing the blood. We're running large volumes of blood through a machine with all kinds of com complex engineering within it. It's not a safe blood. process, right? People it's, don't understand it, it, that it's it, not a it safe can process. Be, it can be unsafe and it can yeah. be something that um, you know requires large cannulas to go into fistulas or lines. It's high infection rates very often. We're removing, you know, the body probably has four or five liters of blood. We're trying to remove often, you know, a liter an hour of, of fluid off somebody. We're cleaning the blood. We're restoring chemistry to the blood. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, right? And now we're saying to people, well, you should do this at home. You know, you're already going through the the, the loss as a patient. Um, I'm losing my autonomy. I don't feel that great. I am having to go on life-sustaining therapy, life support for my kidneys. Mortality rates are high. And now this doctor is telling me I got to, I, I have to should do it at home. You're crazy. Right. And that's, that's the, that's the reaction I get sometimes from patients, from nurses, from other nephrologists. Um, we, the way we do in-center dialysis is really not fantastic. Like to, to replace a complex organ that works 24 hours a day that was built for us with this machine. And then we're going to do it. And typically most patients do four hours, three times per week. Um, yeah. It is and, woefully and insufficient. Let's not forget right? that we have two yeah. of them just because we have of two the of them, and of we're the trying to do this, this this artificial kidney, and yeah. and so really like the, the the lousy outcomes we see in dialysis patients is is partially the way we do dialysis. So often in dialysis, you're doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, meaning there's a two day gap over the weekend you're not getting dialysis, and during that gap on Monday morning, we report a two and a half fold increase in death. We report an eight fold increase in emergency remutilization for things like patients are short of breath, patients have high potassium. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why during that two-day gap, we see high mortality, high high sort of utilization of departments um, and, and ICU resources and so on. So, you know, that's that's something where you, if you look at a home hemodialysis patient um, that that can do it and, and, and do it overnight or do it, you know, five days a week, becomes more physiologic, you remove fluid more smoothly. You don't mm. see these big spikes in lethal biochemistry like potassium. Like potassium, we remove it. That's the one electrolyte that can stop your heart or cause severe lethal arrhythmias. And we're, we're yo-yoing potassium up and down um, you know, in, in a four-hour period and then not dialyzing people and they don't have any way of get rid of it, getting rid of it. And they're eating foods that, you know, generally we consider, you and I consider healthy foods. Yeah. Bananas, tomatoes, potatoes. These are things like, these are Avocados, healthy foods. Yeah. Avocado yeah. and melons. And, 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 and now we're like, no, no, those aren't healthy foods for you anymore. But yeah. apples are okay. Um, yeah. Navel oranges are bad, but mandarin oranges are good. Like, it's really like, I can't even keep track of all those things. So, and then we're telling yeah. patients who, who are told like, drink water to, you know, pr preserve your kidneys but we can't get rid of water. So now we're saying, don't drink any water, right? We're saying like less than a liter a day. Their whole life, you've been told to drink lots of water and stay hydrated. And every lay person's telling you that. We're saying, don't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables anymore you normally eat and don't drink water anymore. So it's very counterintuitive for a lot of patients. I can so I think imagine that's this being so confusing for confusing. patients. And that's what we've heard from a yeah. lot of patients. Like yeah. we've heard from patients that like, what are we supposed to end up doing? Eating cardboard? 
Yeah. Right? Uh, and th- plus they're the diabetic, right? So they can't eat a lot. They can't eat a lot of carbohydrates. And yeah. there's, there's some mm-hmm. literature with, with, with like non-dialysis CKD, you, you pro, their protein restriction, that the jury's still a little bit out on that, I think. But yeah. it becomes like, what do I eat? What do I drink? How do I make myself better? And patients lose a lot of autonomy with regards to that, I think, while also feeling lousy. Yeah. So, Paul, you're saying uh, you're saying by going into the home setting, you give patients a lot more ownership of when they want to dialyze, how frequently yep. they can dialyze, not rely on an in-center environment where they have a set schedule, but rather figure out how you could mimic as closely as possible how your kidneys would work. You can't really do that to that extent, yeah. but at least you can figure out what's right for you. Right, you can you, you have a lot more flexibility, and I, I do talk to patients sometimes that I, I always encourage probably more. I think it's a limit. I don't think you need to dialyze like every day overnight. Some people yeah. do feel better that way, but you can more take back some of that autonomy, especially around if I if I'm going to drink a lot at a family picnic on a Sunday morning, I don't have to worry about calling an ambulance Sunday night because I'm short of breath or I got chest pain. I can just put myself on the machine. Mm-hmm. I can plan out my schedule my day. Yeah. I think more dialysis generally is better for a lot of people, but I also think that patients have enough autonomy that they can kind of shift around and, and they, they know their body. If their blood pressure's up, their ankles are swollen, they're a little short of breath, they know their food overloaded. They know their signs, yeah. One thing that's dangerous, really dangerous, like there's a couple things in, in home dialysis I get worried about is one is like, are they maintaining their dialysis access, their fistula or their line to prevent infection? And there's been a lot of technology around how we, how we do that. Right. Um, the one thing that I think has been a big gap um, o- over time is we really fly blind when it comes to potassium management. And, um, you know, we do a potassium check before dialysis, and then you might be 6.2 before dialysis, which is kind of dangerous. And then we dialyze them, and then after dialysis, it's 3.1. And, yeah. and that's generally a pretty safe range, but it's a broad range for an electrolyte that if it's 6.4, you could get a lethal arrhythmia. If it's 2.8, you could get a lethal arrhythmia. And the number one cause of death, that high mortality statistic I stated earlier, Sahan, around like 50% of five years, number one cause of death in dialysis is something called sudden cardiac death. It means that your heart stopped for a reason. Maybe sometimes that was a myocardial infarction, the traditional way we talk about heart attack, but maybe sometimes it was a lethal arrhythmia. And one of the things we know cause lethal arrhythmia is abnormal electrolytes, specifically potassium, sometimes calcium, magnesium. But potassium is the one that we really see in the emergency department. Someone comes in, potassium's up, EKG, the heart tracing changes. And by a few simple interventions, we can make that EKG in front of our eyes normalize. Right. So it's a really dramatic, but and yet we really have no way of patient symptoms being a precursor to this. We have no way of knowing what the number is. Um, and, I, and I sort of hearken it back to the days when like we had, we treat diabetics, um, you know, before we had sugar, like even glucometers, we, doctors would test for diabetes by dipping a urine dipstick to see if the sugars were high. And then patients would kind of give themselves a bit of insulin. And it was really like crude way of doing it. Then we had finger stick glucose where they could check once in a while and kind of know kind of what their glucose was a couple times a day. And now we're in the era of like, continuous glucose monitors where patients will know, diabetics will know what their sugar is at any given time and how different things they eat or different amounts of activity or different medications or being sick affects their glucose. And that's been a massive innovation for diabetes. And it saves lives because you don't get as many severe hypoglycemic events causing death or or, or like it it really is a massive innovation for us having that real-time data. 
and it and it and it's also very empowering for the patient um, to see what's happening and take their own decisions as well with yeah. the clinical care team, right? So not overly burdening uh, the clinical care team. Paul, let's uh, talk a little bit more about this realm of remote physiological monitoring. So you're saying. Yes, potassium is one of the big pain points for you, um, but you mentioned a number of different electrolytes as well. Uh, if you think about where our remote physiological monitoring is now to support a lot of your home hemodialysis programs compared to where you'd like it to be, let's say in 10 years time, yeah, how do you, how do you see that difference? Yeah, I think we're kind of at the infancy now of like this this concept of digital health, right? That's a, it's a really emerging field and you, there's, a, there's lots of people interested in it. The crude way, like I think, let's take, for example, just chronic kidney disease. We have a pretty good sense of a few parameters like age and sex and GFR, percentage of kidney function and amount of protein in your urine. We can, we can plug into the kidney failure risk equation. We can tell you a pretty good sense of like, are you going to start dialysis in the next year or two years or five years? And it gives patients a bit of like sense of, you know, control over roughly what their risk is. And then we can align our care pathways with like how often we see you, what medications you go on, you know, um, whether you receive multidisciplinary care or not based on some of those crude risks. But that gets us to, a, you know, about an 80 to 85% certainty of a certain time horizon of when mm -hmm. you're going to start dialysis. When it comes to like, you know, really honing down on a precise risk, we need to turn to other biomarkers and other sensors to, to, to really say like, when are you at risk of kidney failure or dialysis or, or, or medications that we know we didn't have years ago. We have multiple medications now that we can, we can use effectively to reduce the chances of, of progression to kidney failure. But a lot of those medications also have effects, complex effects on, on biochemistry, on our physio, like on, on potassium specifically. So I think that right now, I would say monitoring CKD patients is a lot of it is around blood pressure, weight. Um, we use sometimes a, a Fitbit or Apple Watch, like activity monitors. If you're not moving, you're not well, we send like um, quizzes to patients on iPad apps saying, are you in pain? Are you short of breath? Do you have, you know, is there chest pain? Is there something, is your appetite off? Um, that, there's those things. I think CGM is great for diabetics, but it's not really going to predict if someone's going to go into the hospital with a, an event. And I think potassium is one now where we're seeing the emergence of technologies where we can actually do a CKM or continuous potassium monitoring. So I know if I eat, you know, a couple bananas or, or I had a fresh bowl of, you know, some, some type of, you know, avocado or things like that, that, you know, can I eat that? What does it do to my potassium level? What did I do to potassium level in the context? I just started, uh, you know, a new drug that may make potassium go higher. That interplay with how much volume I have on board and, and all there's all kinds of factors where I think, you know, giving patients that control over what they eat, how they treat it, how we intervene. I think we'll like sh in the short term save lives, but also give the clinician and the patient a lot more confidence in using some of these medications that delay progression. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see a role probably down the road where we're kind of like another thing that causes patients to kind of crash into emergency departments is volume. Like I ate a, a, a salty meal and I drank a little bit too much fluid and now my lungs are full of fluid and I short of breath and I'm scared and I have to take an ambulance to emergency. Maybe that means dialysis. Maybe that means admission to intensive care unit to, to diurese a patient. But if a patient had some sense of what their volume status was, maybe it's maybe it's sodium monitoring. Maybe it's something where we do bioimpedance. Like there's all kinds of different ways we potentially could monitor this. But I, I think that would be a very, very helpful 
biomarker to prevent those crashes into dialysis because we can we can predict within a range of who's close we don't want to start patients on dialysis too early we want to use these medications that delay dialysis but there are just factors in a patient's life how much fluid i drink how much salt i drink how much potassium i eat that right. that that they don't feel the symptoms and that's what causes the bad outcomes the crashes the symptoms that right. that are too late so when you mention sodium, one, of the, yeah. one, one thing that I, I just popped, popped into my head is we, there are lots of salt alternatives. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and those ones yeah. actually end up having more potassium, potassium instead of sodium <laughs> yeah. just because. Mrs. Dash and things like that. And yeah, exactly. it's, that's, that's the thing is like, there's just no, there's no shortcutting here. Right. It's, you know, and, and that's at the, the end of the day, the, the four things that you did mention, Paul, as key biomarkers, if I'm not mistaken, potassium, sodium, magnesium, calcium, all electrolytes, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And so much of our body's physiology is really centered around electrolyte management, fluid management, um, and they feed off of that. Yeah, the, the title of the podcast here is Action Potential, right? And that people don't recognize, like if you do think back to, if you took university, you know, physiology or chemistry, all those sodium, potassium, phosphate, you know, mitochondrial, uh, you know, electrical potentials that are all over our body, that's what makes us function. And exactly. we have a very narrow window where, you know, those things work or they don't work. And especially yeah. in vital organs like the heart, where the electricity of the heart keeps our whole body perfused. And if our potassium is out of whack a little bit and our kidneys aren't working that regulate that, it's lethal. Right. So yeah. just fundamentals here. If we can keep those things in, in, in normal range or patients know when they're going out of whack, um, it's, that's a massive innovation for, for this vulnerable patient population. Is, is a big part of your job, Paul, as a clinician, education and building trust? Huge. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, like convincing people on this unsafe perceived procedure to go home on dialysis. Um, I, I always say there's very few things in life that are cheaper and better. And if they're cheaper and better, you should probably go for it. Well, we know in home hemodialysis, if we can like not pay for rides, we cannot build bricks and mortar dialysis units. We don't have to pay skilled providers that we don't even have enough of anyways. Like we wish we could invent a bunch of new nurses. We just don't have that with an aging population. Um, you know, and we can give people a machine at home and they can do it on their own and actually have a better quality of life and better outcomes at less cost because they're doing it more often. It's, it's a win. But how do you convince people that it's safe I can tell you, like, if we look at um, large observational trials in, in Canada, in the UK, in France, in the US, in Australia, um, generally even match control patients, like home hemo patients live longer, they do better, they feel better. But those are always confounded by the motivation to do home hemodialysis, right? So there are alternate studies that say maybe you get more hospitalization, maybe there's more complications in certain areas. But generally, the trend is that home hemo patients do better. I have to convince home hemo patients that they will do better on home. I have to make them feel Probably safe. at a much earlier stage in that CTD yeah. journey, right? You don't wait it, till It there. is. It is. Like, and it's not, I, I find a lot of programs, well, oh yeah, we educated patients, check. Like we told them about the home dialysis. It's not, it's a process. It's building trust. And, and you know, there one, maybe one patient who just has imposter phenomenon that like, I can't do it. I, I'm not smart enough. Well, I have 90-year-olds on home hemo. I've had 17-year-olds on home hemo. I've had people without legs on home hemo. I have people that live a block away from a dialysis unit who want to do it at home because they maintain their autonomy. 
Um, I have people that are super, super afraid of needles. Um, mm. People that they think they don't Simple have space stuff for like that. So it's stuff like that about, and yeah. working through on an individual level over time, what will make you feel safe at home? Yeah. You know, would it, is it, is it like remote patient monitoring? Is it, uh, are you worried about electrolyte? Are you worried about bleeding? Are you like, there, there's just all these different things and everybody's got their own story, their own trust issues. Um, and, it, and it's very individualized. So education, but it's not just like, here's the slide deck and here's the education. It's very individualized. <laughs> and I, it, it's, it's, it's almost in a sense, sales, but it's an empowering sales. Yeah, and I've almost exactly. like that, unless you're really cognitively impaired or you're, bl I've even had blind people do PD. We, we, mm -hmm. we have a very famous story here in Manitoba where a blind patient did PD for several years successfully. Wow. Um, but that's technology because the, the, the cycler talks to them and it, it, you know, there, there's, there's some really cool stuff that people are amazing. And um, my, my job is to teach and inspire and at the end of the day, respect their wishes, but I find yeah. there's, there's a lot of heterogeneity on how far you can, you can push your patients to do things that they didn't think was possible. Yeah. Exactly. I have very so, few people wish... taking themselves off home dialysis um, yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes wishes, I mean, wishes need to be also informed by clear science and, you know, yeah. option, options that are available to them. Uh, uh, kudos to you, Paul. That's, that's amazing to hear a lot of the work that you're doing. If you, um, if you can think of, you know, what are some of the key things that you're really looking forward to in, in the field of nephrology now? Um, there's so, so many things happening, like you said. So many great things. And I think the last few years, I've been so excited um, about some of the pharmacologic interventions that we have, especially specifically for diabetic kidney disease. Um, we used to have, we put people on a drug called ACE inhibitors or ARBs and, you know, they, they promote high potassium. You can't use them in everybody. Um, they cause it's a guideline cause, directed medications, by the way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and that for many, many years, that was the only thing we could do for people. Now we've got like four agents that probably worked in, in, in combination independently to reduce the risk of kidney failure progression and diabetes and high blood pressure are the number one and two causes of like progressive CKD for sure. So it makes more sense to screen people early on for CKD now, um, probably universal screening for CKD. There's a good argument for that with the number of interventions we have now available. Um, the, other, the other thing I'm excited about is, um, is, is in, in the field of glomerulonephritis or autoimmune conditions, there's a lot of new targeted therapies like biologics and, mm. and things like that that are going to really revolutionize more personalized medicine when it comes to CKD. I think there's a lot of work with, um, you know, using big data to find who's got CKD and ensuring they're on the right early stage preventative medications, um, but also a lot of point of care testing work that we can be doing in terms of, you know, find like doing doing screening for we do work in, in our in our in our world here in remote First Nations screening where they don't have a good access to primary care screening. And then I think the monitoring of patients is going to be very, very important as they transition from late stage CKD, where things like volume and potassium and things are so critical, being able to really have good real-time data to intervene early, influence patients' diets, influence medications they're taking at home on their own, similar to what we did with glucose years ago. We can do that now in this world. I'm really passionate about that not only in, in, in late stage CKD, but also in dialysis. Like the fact, the one electrolyte that can kill you, we check once a month, like we should be able to do that all the time. Right. I think that's really, really exciting. And then, and then I think there's a lot of things within um, the, the policy framework that we need to do 
to better serve this population in terms of you know funding new devices, funding drugs, um, incentivizing transplant and you know home dialysis over maybe things that if 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 patients have a choice they should be preferentially doing home therapies. Um, and, and, and a lot of the devices and monitoring are good, that go along with that. So those are some very, very exciting things that are happening. It seems slow always, yeah. especially coming out of the pandemic and, and, and some of the you know, economic ups and downs. But I, I have seen a lot of money on the system side, on the devices side, on the pharmacolo pharmacologic side go into CKD, where I think for 20 years or so, we had very little innovation. And that's really exciting for... Yeah a disease that probably affects, if you look at most studies, 10 to 15% of the general population across the world, yeah. across the world. And as we get older, yeah. you know, it's, it's just going to become more and more prevalent because people are, people are outliving their kidneys. Exactly. Well, Paul, uh, we can keep talking forever on these topics. As you said, um, we're just getting started on, uh, what's really exciting. Um, yeah. but, uh, maybe we leave that for a version two of our podcast or a second episode with you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It was great to hear about your journey. It's great. It was great to hear about some of the key initiatives you've been involved in. You've been a champion of the movement to the home, uh, which is, you know, for a lot of nephrologists, even not something that's been, uh, easy, uh, to yeah. envision because of yeah. the environments in which they work. So, uh, kudos to you. We're really thrilled to be uh, working closely with experts such as yourself. And thank you for showing up in our Action Potential podcast to shine some light into your world um, of nephrology today. Thanks so much, San. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And again, we could talk for, for a long, long time on this stuff. But um, yeah, best of luck with all the stuff uh, we're doing together. And, and let's let's continue to change the world with, uh, with, with better CKD care. Mm -hmm.